Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today we are studying Perek Vav, chapter 6 of Melachim Bet, which opens with a small, somewhat strange anecdote. We're told that the B'nai Hanevi'im militia students tell their master that they are too cramped in their current location, possibly Gilgal, and they want to go to the Yardin to find a parcel of land uh, where they can live and have a little bit more room to stretch their legs. And the request seems to demonstrate to us that Elisha's following has grown. Could be that after the encounter with Naaman, suddenly Elisha's popularity has grown. Midrashim connect this to the previous episode where Gehazi is dismissed and is stricken by Tsara'as. So it could be that up until now, Gehazi had this kind of number two role uh, under Elisha, and as a result, um, he kept many people away. Gehazi might have deterred a lot of people from connecting themselves to Elisha, but now with Gehazi gone, the door is now wide open, so his popularity grows, and as a result, they need to relocate. We then find that they are down by the Yardin, chopping down some wood for exactly what the Sukkim don't specify. They're chopping wood when one of the students' axes break, and the head of the axe flies off the handle and into the water. Not the biggest deal, seemingly, but the student is very upset about this. And he cries out, that's not my axe. I borrowed this axe, and now I've, I've lost. Uh, I've, I've broken it, and I've lost the head of the axe. He's very upset, and as a result, Alicia asks him, where did the head of the axe fall? He says, over there. And so Alicia performs a miracle. He throws a piece of wood into the water where the head of the axe had fallen, and as a result, it floats up to the top and is easily retrievable. Now, what we're meant to make of this story is not so clear. Uh, on a superficial level, one thing we understand from this story is just how moral and how good Alicia's followers are. Right? This person was so deeply upset by the loss uh, of this axe because it was borrowed. It shows that he was someone who cares about the belongings, the possessions of his uh, of his neighbor. So that's that's nice. But nonetheless, the idea that this moment would necessitate a miracle and that that miracle would merit recording is still surprising. And and the kind of the broader message is hard to extract. So I'll leave that for you to consider. In any event, we we move on now to the major narrative of the Perak, where once again we are confronted by the nation of Aram. Aram continuously tries to attack the northern kingdom. But time and again, their attempts to attack the northern kingdom are foiled. And they're foiled because Elisha prophetically learns where they're going to attack. And he would tell the king of Israel what was going to happen. And as a result, the king was able to prepare and lay lay ambushes and and prevent these attacks from succeeding and, and, and was able to drive back uh, the Aramean armies time and again. And this leads the king of Aram, quite naturally, to suspect that there's a spy in his midst who's revealing these secrets to Israel. But one of his ser- servants corrects him and tells him, no, there's no, ser- there's no spy among you who's, who's foiling uh, your attempts. It's Elisha, who is the man of God, who is receiving word from God and informing the king about our attempted attacks. And so... We would expect, I suppose, the king of Aram to say, wow, Elisha is privy to this information. What an incredible thing. And, you know, this might have impressed upon the king of Aram uh, the idea that maybe they sh- he shouldn't be attacking Israel or he shouldn't be bothering Elisha anymore. But in fact, 
he goes in the other direction. He says, I guess we have no other choice but to capture and eliminate Elisha. And that's what he sets out to do. He, sets a, he lays a siege on Dotan, which is where Elisha and his students are located at this moment. And then we, the, the scene turns to one of Elisha's students waking up early in the morning, taking a little stroll, and <gasps> realizing that the city is in siege by this massive fighting force from Aram. And he begins, the student begins to panic. But Elisha quickly comforts him and says, don't worry, we are more numerous than they are. And Elisha davens Tashem to open up the eyes of this student of his, who is then given kind of a spiritual ability to, to see, a spiritual kind of vision. And he sees a massive uh, army of these angelic beings surrounding Elisha. And it's an army that is quite, quite clearly meant to parallel the physical army of Aram that's surrounding the city, that there's this comparable force of uh, angelic beings surrounding Elisha. We then find that Hashem strikes the army of Aram, particularly with blindness. And in that way, this, this moment of danger is diffused. It is, of course, worth noting that we have here a recurrence of a theme, and that is the theme of, of, of sight and blindness, the, the sight and the blindness of the student, his blindness to the spiritual reality, and likewise the blindness of the Aramean army, a literal blindness uh, which uh, made them incapable of properly fighting and laying siege to the city. Elisha and his men then take these blind soldiers uh, as kind of prisoners of war, and they lead them to Shonron, where we certainly assume they'll be killed, uh, and, and in fact the king... Uh, perhaps assumes the same, and he asks Elisha if he can kill these men, and Elisha says, would you kill prisoners of war that you captured with your own sword? Of course not. Uh, Of course you can't kill them. Rather, you have to give them food and drink. You have to take care of their basic needs. And so it's quite remarkable, again, if if we we noted the first story in the parak reflects a certain level of morality. Here again, uh, we're seeing even before the Geneva Convention, Elisha understood that once an enemy combatant was neutralized and no longer a threat, so you have a responsibility to care for them, which is uh, pretty remarkable. After this, being, after being fed and given what to drink, these soldiers, or perhaps after some period of time, are returned back to Aram, and we're told that they no longer came, that these bands of Arameans never came again to the land of Israel, either because they were so frightened from the miraculous doubt of blindness that struck them, or because they were so impressed by the king's morality um, in, in having uh, spared their life and having even provided them with food and drink. So that seems to be a kind of happy ending to this story. There's then a break in the text. And then we find that this deterrence doesn't last apparently uh, indefinitely. It doesn't last very long, because after some period of time, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, is back at it again. And he gathers a huge fighting force, who once again attack Israel and lay siege, this time to Shomron, to the capital, uh, targeting the king and and really the nation as a whole, rather than just Elisha. And this siege causes severe shortages and and severe famine in the city. We're told that the cost of even low-grade food uh, became incredibly high. And, uh, and then uh, we are told that there's this encounter between the king who is walking along the walls of the city, surveying the enemy, uh, um, and he encounters a woman who begs the king to do something to save them, and she describes how dire her situation is, uh, where she and her neighbor are forced 
it's hard to even say it, forced to cook and eat uh, their own children. And hearing this causes the king to tear his clothing and call out and cry out. Now, we would hope that it would say, call out to Hashem and, and plead for help. Um, but instead, he pronounces a death sentence for Elisha, and he dispatches someone to go and to kill him. And the parak ends with this messenger going to Elisha, but ultimately failing to kill Elisha, and, and then having a seemingly very very uh, a dramatic change of heart and a change of tune. And he ends the parak, the very last pasuk in this parak, is him kind of begging Elisha for help. That ending is, is quite cryptic, but that seems to be uh, at least one uh, compelling explanation for it. But I think that in thinking about this parak and, and thinking about uh, its structure, it's helpful to compare the two sieges. When Elisha was under siege, he was able to see the enormous army of Hashem, the angelic beings that were with him. Uh, he had a certain vision. He had His eyes were open uh, to the spiritual reality of the moment, and as a result, he had no fear. But the king's eyes are still shut. Uh, and so when he is under siege, he has no response but, de- de- but despair. And his blindness is so severe, right? His spiritual blindness is so severe that in this darkest moment, he doesn't even have the, the, the clarity to then call out to Elisha or to Hashem, of course, for help. But rather, he somehow blames Elisha. He, he, he says that this is Elisha's fault. And like the blind soldiers of Aram, he even seeks to go and eliminate Elisha. And so the theme of blindness... Uh, to the plain spiritual truth is is this very powerful theme that I think we find woven throughout this parak in various ways. It's a parak that deals with literal and figurative uh, blindness and the ability to see also the physical and the spiritual ability to see. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.